You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Okay, Harvest Bible Chapel, soon to be hope. You know, this is the last Sunday that you'll be called Harvest Bible Chapel Niagara. Next week, Hope Bible Church. Can't wait, can't wait. It's a great, Hope is a great name for church, don't you think? I think so. Hopefully, hopefully if you don't, you'll get to think so, okay? Because it's happening. It's coming, baby, it's coming. Well, when you read through the New Testament, in all the New Testament, we're only told three times, directly three times, that Jesus ever did this. So there's only three places in the New Testament where it says that Jesus ever did this. Once in the book of Hebrews, we are told that he did it sometimes when he prayed. Gospel of John tells us that he did this outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And in our scripture text today, we're told that he did it on the first Palm Sunday, like 2,000 years ago. What am I talking about? What did he do? He wept. He wept. So three times, it's directly said in the New Testament that Jesus wept. Now, my question is, when we think about Palm Sunday and the first Palm Sunday, why did he weep? Why did he cry? Why was he sorrowful or sad? Well, that's what we're going to discover this morning. Because when we understand why Jesus met, we will see something of his heart toward us that I think we need to see. And also, we're going to see something about our situation before God. In fact, I think that if Jesus was physically present with us today, I suspect that he might weep again. Because the cause of his tears then and there can be found here and now. And hearing that, I think should make us sort of sit up and take, take notice. Jesus is weeping. And if he was physically here, he just might weep again. Remember, too, when we read the Gospels, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Luke this morning. Remember when we read the Gospel accounts of the life of Christ? It's not just for our information, and it's not just for our amusement, but they are words that God has given to us to present to us Christ so we can see him and to reveal to us our own condition and to show us how God in Christ has worked for our good. And that's really what I want to do today as we look back on that first Palm Sunday here in Luke chapter 19. Now, here's the scene. Here's the setting. We'll read it in a moment, but just to set it up for you. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday, the first day of the week. So going back 2,000 years to that, what we call Holy Week. And um, just to get the, the sense of it, get oriented. So here we are. We are on Sunday right now, just like in the text, it was Sunday. Now, on Friday, so by the, by the time we come to worship on Friday, whatever service you're going to attend, whichever the two, this Friday, um, Jesus will either be on his way to be crucified or will have been crucified and nailed to the cross. So think about that. I mean, it's just, it's Sunday now. By Friday, he will be crucified. This is what's happening. This is the, uh, the, the situation and as he is, uh, as we pick up this text, he's making his way into Jerusalem. He's going there in order to be crucified. And this is what happens. Notice verse 28, Luke 19. 
and verse 28. And don't get frustrated with me because I'm going to stop a lot along the way and, and give comment just to try to keep us oriented to what's going on. So try not to get frustrated with me as you might be inclined to do. It's understandable, but we'll go to verse 28 here. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now again, why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going there to die for your sin and for mine. Verse 29, and when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now the colt, the colt is a, a young male donkey, right? Never been ridden. And he's like, you're going to go there and you're going to bring it here. Now, I, there's, there's lots of speculation about, you know, what's going on here. Was there a prearrangement? Like had Jesus gone and had a conversation with someone and said, hey, you know, some of my friends are going to show up here on Sunday and, and they, we, we need to borrow your, your young donkey here. That, that's possible that that, that that happened. It's also just as possible that this is him speaking and acting sovereignly. He is, after all, God the Son. And it could very well be him just with authority that only he possesses, uh, saying, here's what, here's what you're to do, here's what you're to say, and here's what's going to transpire. I tend to think the latter, but I, I don't know that for sure, for sure. But anyway, they're to go ahead and they're just to do this, and, and this is what the disciples do. Verse 31, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its, its owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? Again, this sort of makes me think that it's, this may be just the Lord sovereignly working. Just imagine you stepped out in your driveway and somebody's opening up your car door and getting in. W what are you doing? She's like, the Lord said he needs it. Oh, okay then, that's uh, great. That, that's kind of that's, that's what's happening here. And he's, he's going to... Take this, take this colt. So verse 32, so those were sent away and found it just as he has told them. And as they're untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Verse 34, and they said, the Lord has need of it. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, I don't know much about riding donkeys, although I have ridden a donkey once, which is an interesting experience. But the little bit that I know about this part of life is that to ride a young donkey who's never before been ridden is quite a feat. Like you just don't sort of hop on like at the petting zoo and go for a little ride. Like this is, this is someone who is very confident about it. I don't know, maybe Jesus had a helmet on or something that it all worked out. That, I, I, I don't think so. But this is really something here that the, the Lord sits in this cold and it submissively walks under him and carries him. It's remarkable. So Jesus is on it. Now verse 36 and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. You ever done that? Ever, ever done that? Lay your coat down on the sidewalk for somebody to walk over? Like maybe it was a Montreal Canadiens coat or something like that. That would be totally, <laughs> totally understandable. And uh, Pastor Ross approved for sure. But um, it is kind of a peculiar thing in our culture to envision that. But what it is, it's, it's, a very, it's a, an honoring thing here. It's, it's symbolic. It, it's a symbol of submission and of honor. 
Other texts, the other gospel writers in Matthew and in Mark make reference to palm branches being laid down on the road. Uh, surely has something to do with why it's called Palm Sunday. But those palm branches also laid on the road for him to walk over national symbols of victory, the palm branch. Heralding, noting Jesus, lifting him up as the Savior King, an act of honor and submission. They lay their cloaks on the road, on the road. So they're out, their coats are on the road as they walk, as he walks in. Verse 37, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so coming down a road into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So just just hear the crowd. There's a, a, a crowd of people, maybe just like this crowd here. The disciples are among them, other followers are there, and they're, they're shouting at the top of their lungs and heralding him and praising God for the great works that they had seen done. You think, well, what great works had they, had they seen done, the, the mighty works that they had seen? Well, all kinds of things. I mean, they had seen the dead raised. Think of Lazarus. Lazarus, who lived, remember the text earlier talked about Bethany, Bethpage and Bethany. Bethany is, is a little town outside Jerusalem where Lazarus lived. And he was raised from the dead by Jesus. They had seen that. They had seen the blind given their sight. They'd seen the mute being able to speak. The deaf given their hearing. They had seen uh, lepers lepers healed and cleansed. They had seen and heard the good news proclaimed to the poor. They praised God for the great things that God had done in Christ. It's a wonderful, breathtaking moment of worship and praise as the king of all kings comes into his kingly city. But, there's always a but, isn't there, it seems. Verse 38 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're worshiping peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Almost sounds like the angels at Christmas, doesn't it? But, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You just hear them, right? Teacher, teacher, stop them. Notice what Jesus says. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's awesome. It's like worship is inevitable in this moment as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. Now, notice what Luke says happens next. As Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, he's coming down into the city, and there as he's making his way down, he can see the city stretched out before him and in front of him. Notice what happens. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. Have you wept recently? What was the last, when was the last time you wept? What was it that you wept over? Maybe a breakup? Maybe a failure? A loss? A death. When you weep, it's, it's an intense sorrow and sadness that overflows with raw emotion. This is what Jesus did. He wept with raw emotion. And as he wept, he spoke. Notice it says, he, the end of verse 41, he wept over it, over the city, saying, would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now remember, he's weeping. 
You ever try to talk when you're weeping? What does it sound like? It don't sound pretty, does it? There's no crying pretty, Carrie Underwood, when you're weeping. What does he sound like? Sounds like, would, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Like that. It's emotional. He says, but now are hidden from your, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What's hidden from your eyes? Well, there's things Jesus says that makes for peace. But you don't see it. And he's weeping about this. He says, verse 43, for the days will come on you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, of this visitation. This Jesus is here, is looking to something that's going to transpire in a few short years from this moment. And within 40 years, Jerusalem will be sacked by Rome. And the destruction will be severe. It's interesting, he says, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. A number of years ago, I, I went to Jerusalem and went to the temple precinct. And it's, it's pretty amazing to go there. And you can see... Uh, sidewalks right, right along the side of the, the temple wall where stones have been broken and hurled down in those days when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem. And you can still see the sidewalk, there's stones there, there's rubble, and the sidewalks are all smashed up still. You can still, 2,000 years later, you can go and you can see it. Like that's, that's what happened. That's what Jesus was talking about. There's, there's destruction coming. There's sorrow to come. And what Jesus does here, the, the implication is that there, 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 was a, there is a possibility of peace, but the people don't see it. It's plain, but it's hidden. There, there's a willful blindness that's going to lead to judgment. And what's going to happen is not just a geopolitical happenstance thing, but ultimately it's a God thing. Because, Jesus said, they did not recognize, they did not know the time when God visited. God himself, God in the flesh, visited them. And because of this, there will be consequences. And in the providence of God, an enemy, namely Rome, will rise up and destroy Jerusalem, a tool of God's judgment on the people of Israel who rejected Jesus. And 40 years from that time, this is exactly what would happen. Now get the picture here it is. We've got a physical judgment coming that's not merely physical, but really truly is spiritual. Because it's all about the people having rejected God, particularly having rejected his son, the Lord Jesus. Now get the picture. Here he is, Jesus himself, who is salvation from sin. And salvation from judgment. He is the promised Messiah, sent for the salvation of his people, but they have rejected him. He came and they said, no, we don't want you. They rejected him. And instead of finding peace with God, which was possible, they were instead facing down destruction, physical destruction, but ultimately spiritual destruction. And loved ones, that's why Jesus wept. That's why Jesus wept. He wept not for himself, but for sinners. I mean, we can think about this. You know, what are some reasons why, why Jesus would weep? 
There's all kinds of plausible things. If we weren't studying the text, if we weren't carefully looking at the text, there's all kinds of reasonable explanations we could, we could put in here. I mean, just think of the fact that he's about to die on the cross that week. It'd be understandable if we found him on Sunday weeping, looking at the city and knowing where he's going, he's going to die. It would be understandable that he would be weeping over the physical pain that he's going to experience. It'd be even more understandable to, to see him weeping over the spiritual pain that he was going to face as he takes upon himself the judgment of the world. It would be understandable if we might... We might suggests that maybe he's weeping over the fact that his mother, his beloved mother, would be a witness to the murder of her son. It would be understandable that he would weep, or that he'd weep for his disciples who would be thrown into so much turmoil, or his church, his blood-bought church, knowing the persecution that was coming to them on the other side of the cross. If we weren't reading the text and studying the text carefully, we can conjecture all kinds of reasons why we think Jesus might be weeping, but the text tells us there's one reason he was weeping, and it wasn't primarily any of those other reasons. He was weeping over unrepentant sinners. That's why he was weeping. And that's why I said if Jesus was here today, he might be weeping still here physically. If he was physically here, he might be weeping here today too. Because I wonder if maybe some of you are in that category. A sinner who thus far has rejected God's salvation. Jesus wept not for himself, but for sinners who would not make peace with God on God's terms. Hey, hey do, you, do you have peace with God? Like, do you have peace with him? Do you have your sins forgiven? Have you trusted Jesus to give you peace with God? There's three lessons here that I think that this text teaches us, and then two responses. Okay, so three lessons, and then two responses from those lessons. Lesson number one, God has terms of peace with him. God has terms of peace with him. If we would have peace with God, we must recognize that there are things that make for peace. You know, Jesus said that? Jesus said that, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So having peace with God is not an automatic thing. And it isn't, it isn't what I say it is or what I imagine it is, but there's defined things that make for peace with God. What, what are they? Well, we could summarize it in one thing that the, the ultimate terms of peace with God is could be summarized in one word, Jesus. You have peace with God through Jesus. See, the thing you, got, you and I got to understand is that we are on our own at enmity with God, or the Bible calls us enemies of God. You say, well, really, enemies of God? Like, what do I have against God? Well, it's, the issue is what he's got against you, and it's called sin. Everybody, the Bible says that all of us have sinned, every one of us. And at the root of sin is that we've not treated God like God. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. Every one of us. And sin puts us at odds with God. And so that we, on our own, naturally, we actually don't have peace with him. Now, there's a lot, a lot of people that are going to tell you that. But I'm telling you that because it's true and you need to know that. 
that just on your own, like you, you, don't have, you don't have peace with God. A lot of people show up at church on Sunday assuming they got peace with God because they showed up at church or because, because they've, they've done a lot of good things in life, like raising their family and being an honest citizen and being generous. And, and all these things are good. I'm not down on those things. They're good, commendable things. But they don't get you peace with God. They flow out of in the Christian life. Having peace with God causes us to flourish in those things for God's glory and the good of other people. But having peace with God is not just what I deem, whatever I deem gives me peace with God, is what God says gives me peace with him. And his terms are Jesus. In particular, I got down here four things with regard to Jesus and making peace with God that are crucial for us to hear and understand If I'm to have peace with God, I must repent. Repent. Repentance means heartfelt sorrow that leads to change. It's like, you ever had a time when you've looked at somebody and what you've done and you said, I was so wrong. I've been totally in the wrong. You ever done that? If you ain't ever done that, I'm going to guess you don't have many good relationships. Because we've all been there uh, getting it wrong. But here's the thing. If you're going to get the relationship right with God, you've got to start with this. I've been wrong. I got it wrong. I've got to acknowledge that my way on my own is not the right way. It's the Lord's way. I've got I to put Jesus first ahead of my ambitions, my desires, my popularity, my opinions, or the opinions of others. I've got to go from doing my own thing and putting Jesus wherever I feel like to putting Jesus first. It's a change. It's a heartfelt sorrow, like I got this wrong, that leads to change. It's not enough just to say, I feel bad about this. The call to repent is the, yeah, I feel bad about it, but so much so that I turn from it to Jesus. I must repent. I must believe. You know, actually, in the Gospel of Mark, it's like the first thing we read Jesus saying in the Gospel of Mark. Repent and believe the Gospel. I got to believe. In other words, when I believe, I look away from myself to Jesus and I believe on him, that he's the savior and he can save me. I don't have peace with God on my own, but I believe that Jesus can make peace between me and God, which by the way, he did on the first Good Friday when he died for your sin. Bless him. I got to believe. Also, repentance and belief is kind of two sides of the same coin because if you believe on Jesus, you will repent. And say, I'm, I'm not going my own way anymore. I'm going in Jesus' way. But I'm just separating them out so you can see the nuance. I repent. I turn away from wherever way I'm going to go in Jesus' way. I believe that I trust in him and what he de- his death on the cross and his resurrection. I must repent. I must believe. I must receive. Again, believing on Jesus is receiving him, but I just want you to see here what we're talking about. The Bible says in in Romans 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how we get peace with God. It's, It's through him. I've got to receive Jesus and his gift of salvation that he offers me. John 1, 12 says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So all who receive him, believing in him, are called children of God. And if you're one of the children of God, then you've got peace with God. You're no longer enemies with him. I, gotta, I, I need this Jesus. He's able to do that. I must confess Christ. I must confess him. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so he is who he says he is, 
I admit it. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because a dead Savior can't save you. So I believe he rose from the dead, and I do. Then you will be saved. So I confess Jesus. I admit, I say it. Jesus, you, you are who you say you are. You've done what your word says you've done. I'm trusting you. Now, all that might sound a little comp. I put this all together. I got to repent. I got to... I got to believe, I got to receive, I got to confess. It sounds like, sounds like here's, a, here's the thing, you need Jesus. So fly to him. Say, Jesus, save me, save me. I need him. I need him. In so doing, you are repenting, you are believing, you are receiving, you are confessing. I must recognize that God has terms of peace, and those are the terms. I need Jesus. And this is why Jesus is weeping, because he looks at this city full of people that he loves, he's come to save, who rejected him, straight-arming him, like the football player, just straight-arming, get away from me. It's a great move in football. It's a deadly move in your life when it comes to Jesus. I must recognize that God has terms of peace, and these are the terms And tragically, loved ones, tragically, many people don't accept God's terms of peace. That leads to the second lesson, namely, many do not accept God's terms of peace. God has an offer of peace with him through Jesus, and many say, no, I don't want that. Jesus witnessed it firsthand. That's why he is crying And that's why he's lamenting in verse 42, would that you, if only you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. It's not that they hadn't heard the message of Jesus. It's not that they hadn't seen anything of his divine power. They had. They had. They'd heard his message. They'd seen something as divine power. It's just that they didn't accept him. And they rejected what they heard. They rejected what they saw. They rejected Christ. And I just have to say that I think many people, many people are in that same place today. I have a hard time accepting God's terms of peace because just like the, the Pharisees who we, who we read about saying, Jesus, shut your people up. Just like them, there's a lot of people that that's their attitude. Hear the gospel message, hear us worshiping, hear us proclaiming Christ Easter, shut those people up. And they feel that in their hearts because they don't want to hear it. They're bothered by Jesus. They're offended by him. In fact, I wrote down some things here, some some reasons people have a hard time accepting Jesus. I wrote down many are offended by him. They're really offended by the fact that he claims to be the exclusive way to God. It bothers people. You've, You've probably heard that. How can you just say that yours is the right way? What are all these other religions of the world? Look, there's a lot of things I don't know. I know this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It offends people. Dear friend, you might be offended today that we're saying that Jesus is the one and only way. But I have to tell you, for us who know him, we just praise God that there is a way. That's where we're at today. And that way is sure. Many feel offended by him. Many feel threatened by him. Because he speaks with the authority of God because that's who he is. And he demands that we surrender all of our own authority and autonomy to him. And people get threatened by that. Sometimes people are disappointed in him. 
Because what they're looking for is someone or something that will help them fulfill their desires. But then they hear Jesus calling them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Like, oh, that? That's not what I'm looking for. Even though tragically, it actually is what our hearts really need. Many are offended, threatened, disappointed. Many are just bothered by Jesus, bothered by him. Bothered by him because he calls us out. He calls out our greed, our hypocrisy, our self-indulgence, our self-righteousness. And by his words and his actions, he shows us that our brand of righteousness falls way short of the glory of God. And when that gets exposed, we get bothered and agitated. Have you experienced that? I, I have. I, I can just tell you straight up that there's lots of, I don't like being exposed for not being on the right side of things. I remember one time, this was, this was in our BC life before children. Leanne and I were getting ready to go out on a date, and I strolled out into the living room, and she looked at me. She gave me one of these once-overs, you know, she like looks at me from head to toe, and she's like, oh, no, no. I'm like, what? You can't go out in public wearing that. What, what, what are you talking about? It's like, Ross, your purple textured shirt and green cords? No. I'm like, Leanne, I've been wearing this all day. Everywhere I've gone, do you know all the places? I've gone to placement today, but out in public, gone here, gone there. I've been wearing this all day. And you're saying I look hideous? Well, she didn't use the word hideous, but that's how I felt. I felt embarrassed, ashamed. And the reality is that sometimes that's how we feel when we get called out. You hear the words of Jesus and just kind of, we're just bothered by it. And those words that are meant to show us our need of him and to draw us to him. But in our fallenness and our sinful hearts, what happens sometimes, maybe it's just me. So if it is just me, just pray for me. But maybe it's just me. When I get exposed, my tendency is to repel, not to draw near, get defensive. And I think, loved ones, that's why lots of people sometimes reject Jesus. It's because he says things that are true, that don't stroke our beloved ego, and we repel. And tragically, many do not accept God's terms of peace. What about you? And any of these things resonate with you, being offended, threatened, disappointed, bothered? Many do not accept God's terms of peace because they do not accept the one who alone can broker peace, namely Jesus. And so they don't have it. Many do not accept God's terms of peace. There are, God has terms of peace. Many do not accept his terms for peace. And for Jesus, this is just a deeply troubling thing. And we see that in the text, don't we? We see that he's, he's weeping as he thinks about the people. And he knows that in a short time, there will be terrible sorrow and suffering is going to come their way, that souls will be lost. And it moves him to pity and to grief. The implication in our passage is that if they had received, if they would receive their Savior, their fortunes would be different. Look in verse 44, he says, talks about this coming destruction. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God has visited you. God has come to you with salvation and you've rejected him. So the implication is that if they had received their Saviors, their fortunes would be different. If you do receive Jesus, your fortunes will be drastically different drastically different. But if you don't, you should be very concerned. This leads me to my third lesson. Rejecting God's terms of peace comes with serious consequences. 
There's an offer of peace on the table today through Jesus. Rejecting Jesus and God's offer of peace comes with serious consequences. Like we're not, not messing around. I'm not trying to frighten anybody. I'm just trying to tell the truth. The truth is serious. It comes with serious consequences that Jesus refers to. I want you to notice an interesting detail that I think is very instructive in this passage. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on what? What is he riding on? A donkey, a colt, a young donkey. A male, you knew that, right? You were listening earlier, right? So what's he riding? A donkey. Thank you for the 19 of you that participated. Love you. A donkey. He's riding on a donkey. You ever ask yourself this question about Palm Sunday? Why didn't Jesus just walk? Like, why, why do you ride a donkey? Why not just walk? He walked everywhere else. Why, why do you arrange or sovereignly have this donkey arranged? Why, why all this go and tie the colt and, and explain what you're doing and then run from the cops and bring them out to be like, why, why all this match? There was no cops involved. I'm just keeping you with me. Why, why riding on this? Why a donkey? Or why, okay, if you want to ride in, why not a chariot? Or why not a horse? Or why not? You got these 12 strapping men with you. Why not just say, boys, pick me up and carry me. This will be fun. Why? Why? Why ride a donkey? Well, you say, well, Ross, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that, he would, that the, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a colt. And I say, amen, and that's true. But why was that the prophecy? Why a donkey? Well, I think it's very interesting if we realize that in the ancient Near East, a donkey is symbolic of something. A donkey is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of peace. Jesus, so get this picture. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and very, very intentionally goes way out of his way to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. Why? That donkey is a symbol of peace. And the one riding it comes, riding on a donkey, comes in with an attitude, with portraying humility portraying gentleness. He's got, if, if he's coming into Jerusalem and it's screaming from the top of, of the donkey's lungs, I come in peace, I come for peace. It is a peaceful, peace-loving, peace-producing approach. He comes in peace to Jerusalem to on Friday, he's coming Sunday, on Friday he's coming to make peace between sinful men and women and God. So he rides a donkey, it's symbolic, it's, it's so powerful, and loved ones, that's where we are right now. Jesus comes to you today, as it were, on a donkey. Speaking to you, preaching to you, proclaiming to you, pleading with you, peace. Peace with God. He comes in peace. He comes for peace, to make peace between you and God. You on your own do not have peace with God, but Jesus, the Savior, comes riding on a donkey, that symbol of peace, to make peace between you and him. The offer's on the table. It's on the table today. It's right there for you to receive, to believe, to confess, to take him, to trust in Jesus. You can have peace with God. He comes lowly and humble and gentle on a donkey to save you, to bring you into a peaceful forever relationship with God. He comes today on a donkey. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when he will come again. And he will be riding an animal, the Bible says. But it won't be a donkey. The Bible says that when he returns, 
he will not be riding a donkey, but he will instead be riding a horse. And a horse in the ancient world was not a symbol of peace. That's the donkey. The horse is a symbol of war and aggression. You're like, really? This sounds like just some preacher making this stuff up. Revelation 19.11. Listen. Revelation 19.11. Looking ahead to the return of Jesus. It says, Then I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's talking about judgment to come. You see, today, dear friend, he comes in peace to make peace between you and God. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have a forever friendship with God today. The offer is there for you today. But there's coming a day when that offer will not be on the table. The offer will be forever removed. And the one who came to save in peace the first Palm Sunday will come then to judge. And that judgment will be horrific because it'll be forever. And forever is a long time. To be separated from God, if you choose to remain at enmity with God, then that's where you will be forever. And he will come and he will judge and make war against all who do not obey his gospel, but choose to persist in their own way in rebellion against the true sovereign of the universe. And friend, this is why Jesus wept. Is it because he looked on a people who were facing that kind of judgment? And here is salvation itself coming to them. And he knew that so, so many of them would say no. Surely you won't be those people too. Will you? Surely you won't see the Savior coming to you today in peace and reject him, will you? Surely you will, you will see. This is a gift from heaven for me to save my soul, this Jesus. You will trust him, won't you? You will accept God's terms of peace. Will you not? It's there for you today. God has terms of peace. Many don't accept his terms of peace. And not accepting or rejecting God's terms of peace has serious, serious consequences. Those are the lessons. Now two responses. First of all, my brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Lord and love him, when I read this text, I think to myself, I have to adopt the Lord's heart for the lost. We, we need to adopt or embrace or take to ourselves the Lord Jesus' heart for lost people. What's his heart for lost people? It's broken. It's broken. We see him here weeping, and he declares these words through tears. Would that you, even you, had on this day, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus looks upon a city that's filled with people who have rejected him, who will reject him, who will even crucify him. He's come in peace, but they will not accept God's terms of peace. And what is his heart's response? It's powerful. It's not pride or arrogance or dismissiveness or belittling. 
It's weeping. It's weeping. He's broken, broken for people. And I see this text on Palm Sunday, and I think, that's what I need, too, in my heart. What is my heart toward lost people? I got all kinds of people in my life who don't know this Jesus, who are not, do not have peace with God. When was the last time I wept for them? Let me ask you. When was the last time you wept for the lost? Broken in tears. When was the last time you sobbed because there's people in your life who need this Jesus, and the offer of peace is on the table for the taking, and they won't? Oh, God forgive us for being way too okay, way too okay with the fact that people are rejecting God's terms of peace. God forgive us. God have mercy on us for being way too okay with that. And understand, loved ones, that only God can save. You and I don't have the power to save anybody. It's a work of God. I'm not calling you to take that upon yourself today, but what I am calling you to do is say, hey, let's look at our Savior and let's ask God to give us something of his heart for the people that he's put in our lives. That we see them, not that we just turned a, a puddle of mess in front of them every time we see them. That would be super awkward and probably not winsome. But that we'd have a heart for them and love them enough to be broken that they don't have peace with God. And to add to that prayer, Lord, give me your heart for lost people, to leverage Easter in order to act. You know, you leverage something, you're trying to pry something open. If you can get a long stick or something and pry on it, there's a lot more power on the end of the stick than there is just with your fingers prying at the base of it. And I think that things like Easter and Christmas are great leverage for evangelism because not everybody... But I find there's lots of people in my life who are not really interested in coming to church any time of the year, except for they're, they're more open to the idea at Easter and Christmas. In fact, I'm just saying this, it feels less weird to ask somebody to come to church at Easter or Christmas. In fact, some people actually feel kind of honored that you want to do that. And I think that if we're going to be, if we're on mission for the Lord, then we should leverage that. Just leverage that and take full advantage of it. And so here, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite somebody to church on Easter weekend. Every single one of you. Yeah, the, 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 I'm talking to the person sitting in your seat right now. Okay? I know you think I'm talking to the person beside you, but I'm actually also talking to you. To invite someone. I want to challenge you to invite someone to come to Easter weekend. We went to three services so that we could manage the parking situation, which for Charles and his team is just chaos. It's a beautiful chaos, a great problem to have. But we go to three services so that not only we can accommodate our whole church family, but our church family can invite, invite, invite. Invite a sibling, invite a neighbor, invite a teammate, invite a coworker. Listen, listen. There's a really good chance that, that the people in your life ain't coming to church this weekend unless you invite them. But if you do invite them, the chances of them showing up here on, on Easter weekend goes up right? So that's my challenge. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm just going to just be a totally annoying pastor. Forget what I said about challenging you to invite someone to, Chris, to Christmas. Yeah, Christmas too. Easter, and ahead of myself. Forget, forget the challenge to invite someone. Let me just get more direct. Who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite? Just like, let's just skip past the challenge and get right on to the issue. Who are you going to invite? You say, I don't know. Pray about it. Lord, show me who. I've already, I've been, I'll tell you right now, I've invited somebody to come next Sunday. They may not come. 
They may not, but I invited them. And I'm going to follow up with them and I'm praying. We'll see what the Lord does. Who are you going to invite? Why do you want us to invite? Why is this? You want to fold church, Ross? Yeah, yeah, because we care about lost people. And so we want people to come and hear good news. What I find is that when we act, when we take steps to act, we pray for God to change our hearts, to give us a heart for lost people. But when we act and we take steps toward reaching and, and sharing with lost people, God's work just seems to continue and deepen as we step forward. So dear friends, adopt the Lord's heart for the lost. And that doesn't hinge on inviting for Easter week. I don't want to blow it out of proportion, but I just think, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Adopt the Lord's heart for the lost. Finally, response. Accept the Lord's offer of peace. My dear friend, do you have peace with God? Do you have your sins forgiven? Are you in a saving relationship with God? Like, like do you know that you know him? That you have Jesus in your life, you put your trust in him, and that based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross and having raised from the dead, that you got a home in heaven? Like, do you know that? I want you to understand that this Jesus who came to Jerusalem on a donkey in peace comes to you in the same heart today with the same offer. That you can have that. And so I want to call on you to, to make peace with him. You say, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to give you the CBAs of making peace with God. The CBAs. You've heard of the ABCs? I hope you have. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. This is different. This is the CBAs. C, confess. B, believe. A, accept. Confess, believe, accept. You want to have peace with God? Confess. Confess that you need it. I don't have peace with God on my own. I need to have it. And I confess, Lord Jesus, that you alone can do it for me. Confess. Believe. Believe that Jesus can. That he died for your sin. That when he died on that first Good Friday, he died to pay the penalty for your sin. And that he arose from the dead. Believe him. Believe in him to save you. Believe in him to give you the forgiveness of sins. Believe in him to broker peace between you and God. He will do it. Believe him. And then thirdly, accept. Accept his offer of peace with God. Accept him as your savior and your Lord, the one who's now in charge of your life. Accept that. Confess, believe, accept. Do it while you can. Do it even today. In fact, you can do it right, right where you are. Actually, that's how I want to close this sermon. Is to give you an opportunity to do just that. You say, Ross, okay, you give me all kinds of things to think about here. What do I do right now? I would say this. If you, if you want to put your trust in Jesus, I think a great way to just clarify that and solidify that in your own heart and mind is just to talk to him. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. And this isn't some magic formula. Like, you don't have to pray a prayer exactly like what I'm going to do. But if you want to get right with the Lord today, you want this peace, I'm going to say a prayer. And if what I'm praying is in line with what you're feeling and wanting, you just pray along with me. God can hear what you're thinking. He knows everything in your mind. And you can even whisper this prayer after me. You can even just say, Lord, what he said, what he said, that's what I'm saying. 
So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you know and love Jesus, and as I'm praying, you pray for the people around you. Maybe it's someone you don't even know. And just say, I just pray for that person nearby you as we pray. Let's bow and pray. And as we do, the team's going to come and, and lead us. If you want peace with God, you pray a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, I confess, I admit that I need you. There's a lot here today I don't fully understand, but I do understand this. I need peace with God, and I want it. I confess that, Lord. I confess I need you, Jesus. And I believe, I believe that you can give me that peace with God, that you can save me, that you died to pay the penalty for my sin, and that you rose from the dead. You're alive today and therefore able to help me. I believe in you as best I know how. There's lots I don't know, Lord. But I know this, I believe in you. And I accept you today. I accept you and this glorious offer of peace with God. I know there's lots I still don't understand, but I know this. I want you to save me, so save me, please. Please just come and do this, please. And dear friend, when you say a prayer like that and you mean it, that's what we're talking about today, about accepting the Lord's offer of peace. So Lord, I pray for those who are watching online or here with me in this room, who have even right now accepted your offer of peace, would you, by your Spirit, confirm in their hearts the security they have in you and give them freedom and courage to tell another Christian of what they've done. And that's what I would challenge you to do, to do that, to tell somebody that you have done that this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you come in peace to make peace. Make us peacemakers in your service, we pray. Lord, put on our hearts and our minds people who you want to come here. And I pray that this, that the service and all that we do next weekend would be to your glory, that the good news would go out in power, Lord. We want to serve you in just a simple way. It's not the only way, but we sure want to do it in that way. And so we would commit ourselves to you in that way together in Jesus' name.